Jesus said to the disciples, this kind can only come out by prayer and by fasting. Evidently, the Lord had been praying and fasting. Well, this is a lesson on faith. How is our faith? You say, well, I believe, but uh, boy, there sure is that unbelief. Well, that's what makes it faith, okay? The doubt is what makes it require faith in order to believe. God doesn't need a whole lot of faith to work with. How do we get faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, being in the house of God, and hearing the truths of God, and then believing God and His promises, thousands of them in the Bible. Can we do that? I believe if we do, God will help our unbelief. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark once again, where we've been in a series, and today the ninth chapter, Mark chapter 9. If you look behind me, if you're done turning, you'll see um, actually where today's scenario takes place. You've got Mount Hermon up in this area, and best we can figure is Christ has been up on top of the mountain. He's transfigured there before the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, and Afterwards, we find it's time for him to come down from the mountain. And there's a reason for that. There's a demon-possessed boy down at the bottom of the mountain. That really describes life, doesn't it? There are mountaintop times, and then there are times that we have to come down into those valleys and deal with unpleasant things. And it's a striking contrast sometimes. When you think of it, Christ is on a mountain one moment, he's down in a valley the next. Up on top of the mountain, you've got God dominating. Down there in the valley, Satan's dominating in this possessed young man. You find on top of the mountain, the heavenly father thundering a voice saying, this is my son and whom I'm well pleased. But at the bottom of the mountain, there's a boy and the father saying, my son is a lunatic. He's demon possessed and very distressed. We find the transfigured son up on top of the mountain. We find a tormented son down in the valley. Striking contrast, most striking. Well, in Mark chapter 9, we pick up the story in verse number 17. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath the dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came in unto him? And he said of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. 
And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. I direct your attention back to the end of verse number 24, where the father, the distressed dad, says, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I'd like to deal with that today. Lord, help my unbelief. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you now for this time in your word. We thank you for the truths that we can learn and the, the practical application that we can make. Please help us now to listen carefully. Give to us, each and every person here today, what we need from thy word. And we'll thank you for it. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen going to be talking today about faith. The Christian life is a life of faith. We read in 2 Corinthians 5-7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. This is describing Christian people. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. But by faith in what? That's the question. You know, there's meism today, which uh, basically teaches to have faith in yourself. You ever heard that? You've got to believe in yourself. Is that right? Is that biblical? Is that scriptural? No, that's not. That's not where our faith is. Not in self. And then there's humanism. Not meism, but humanism, which says, put your faith in your fellow man. It's in the power of man. Man can do it. Man can accomplish it. Man can lift himself up by the bootstraps. No, that's not where our faith ought to be. You know, people really don't understand faith. And you hear a lot about keeping the faith. Keep the faith, baby, you know? What's that mean? Well, it means just hang in there and keep going. But that's not faith. What should our faith be in? If we as God's people are to walk by faith, not by sight, where do we put our faith? Well, the Apostle said in Galatians 2.20, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So we live by faith in the Son of God. Now, society says seeing is believing. I won't believe it unless I see it. But Jesus Christ had this to say in John twenty twenty nine, He said, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Can we say we're blessed of God? We haven't seen Him, but we still believe in Him? Doubting Thomas said, I, I got to see to believe. But Christ came along and He said, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. I've told before the illustration of the uh, young Christian teenage girl with a sweet spirit who wore that locket. You remember the story. But she wouldn't let anyone see whose picture was in the locket. All her chums wanted to find out, who's your beau? Who's your sweetheart? One day she was uh, in the uh, bathroom getting ready and a friend was staying over at her house. The locket was on the dresser. The friend clicked the pin on the locket. It opened up and instead of a picture of a boy, it simply had a verse in there. 1 Peter 1.8 the verse says, Whom having not seen, ye love. And whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable. It's describing the love of her life who she couldn't even see. And whom having not seen, ye love. Speaking of the Lord, and whom though now ye see him not. Notice these words, yet believing. That's faith. Yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable. 
You know, Christians trust in a God we have never seen. We trust in a, a Holy Spirit we have never seen, a Jesus Christ that we have never seen. We, we're thinking about this place called heaven that we've never been to. We, we have embraced a death and a resurrection that we've never gone through, but we do all this by faith. I watched my dad pass away here a few weeks ago and thought about that trip that he's about to take, that trip we're all going to take one day if the Lord should tarry, and we take that trip by faith. We look forward to this heaven by faith. And by the way, the way we get there is by faith. We read in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Organized religion comes along and says, well, you got to get baptized as a baby. Got to take communion when you hit a certain age. You got to go to confession. You got to uh, attend church. You got to do this. You got to do the other thing. And hopefully when you die, you'll have done all the, the to-do list here spiritually. Your good will outweigh your bad and God will let you into heaven. Well, that's not Bible salvation at all. That's organized religion. Bible salvation is anchored on the promises of God. And where are those promises found? They're found in the Word of God. The promises of God are in the Word of God. That's where our faith is anchored. And Jesus in in Matthew 5.18 said, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, the Bible, till all be fulfilled. Our faith is anchored in the Scriptures. And God's Word is all we're going to get this side of heaven. And if we want faith, we're told in Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. It's exactly what you're doing right now, what I'm doing right now. We are hearing the Word of God, and that's all we're going to get this side of heaven. You know, we find a story of a rich man in Luke 16 who dies and goes to hell and realizes he had misled his five brethren. And now they were going to be coming to that place. And he begs the prophet Abraham to to send somebody back to the earth, and somebody that would come back from the dead would certainly convince his brothers of what he's trying to tell them. And Abraham said, no, that's not the way it works. In Luke 16, 31, he said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, speaking of the Bible they had at that time, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You say, well, I don't believe that. Man, if somebody came back from the other side and said, this is what's on the other side, and this is what's waiting, and this is where it's at, and this is how it is, well, we'd believe them. Well, you know what would happen is the shock and the awe would wear off after a little while. And then mankind would be right back into his sin once again. No, it's true. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead. God says, I want you to exercise faith. So let's talk about this. Lord, help my, my unbelief. As we talk about this profound statement made by this distressed dad, we see several things. And the first is what I call the embarrassed disciples. The embarrassed disciples. It's an awkward time. It's a tense moment. It's an anxious moment. But it starts in verse 17, where one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. Now, Matthew gives us a little bit more insight into this. In Matthew 17:15, the dad said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. The word lunatic there, we get our word epilepsy from it. He, he would go into convulsions. This was an ugly scenario here. Now, Jesus Christ had been up on the mountain. What a respite. What a break. But he had to come down now. 
And isn't that the way it really works? Isn't that how life is? I said last time, we can't stay up on the mountains all the time. Quite often there's a mess down in the valley. Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days. His skin was glowing even. But what was going on down there in the valley? Well, they'd gotten back into idolatry. They'd made this golden calf and were worshiping it. It was ugly. And Moses had to come off the mountain and go back to a mess. Now here's Jesus Christ. <laughs> Same thing, been on the mountain. But now he's got reality down in the, the base of the valley here. You ever feel like that? I mean, you'd like to stay on top of the mountain, but that's not the real world. Back from that vacation, you get back into the real world. Or back from that weekend, and back to the real world. Back from a revival uh, in the church, and, and just a, a spiritual high, and it's like rats, i got to go back to the world. I'm sure we've all felt like that. You'd love to stay on the mountain. The dad says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. Luke tells us this is his only son. And he's pleading for mercy. Help my one and my only son. Now back in verse 17 of this chapter, notice he says he has a dumb spirit toward the end of the verse. It doesn't mean he's ignorant. It means he couldn't speak. He's a mute now. He's gagged. The devil had so possessed this boy, he could not even say words anymore. This is real. And by the way, demonic activity is real. You know, we sometimes think it's a, it's a folklore or, or some fable, but there is a supernatural world. It's going on around us. It's invisible. It's happening here right now. It's going on in the city. There are some who say it doesn't exist, but they have their head in the sand or they're uneducated. Anyone who's been in a biblical ministry will tell you that demons are real. They are a very, very real thing. You go to third world countries, you'll find them a lot more prevalent than here. A culture steeped in, in voodooism and spiritism and sorcery and Satanism. Here we find the devil's going to operate more covertly. And, and uh, that's the culture in which we live in. We read in 2 Corinthians 11.14 that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He'll even use organized religion traditional mainline religion that doesn't line up with the Bible. And it'll look good, it'll seem good, but it's the devil being transformed into an angel of light. It's in disguise in our culture. And if we don't know the Bible, we're not going to, uh, uh, we're going to fall for it basically here. You, you find in places like Africa and Asia and other places I've been, it's very, very obvious. But here it's a bit more sophisticated. But at the same time, we find here that often, oftentimes people miss the diagnosis, and I think they had missed the diagnosis with this young man. They thought maybe it's epilepsy or something like that, or a mental disorder. According to Matthew, they thought he was epileptic, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was demonic activity, and it was a scary thing. Notice in verse 18, the, the dad goes on and describes the scenario. He says, And wherever he, the, demoth, the demon, taketh him, the boy... He the boy, uh, or he the demon teareth him, the boy, and he the boy foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. This was ugly. This was scary. We find out here he brought him to the disciples in verse 18, but they could not cast out the devil. We find here that this boy is foaming at the mouth. Have you ever seen a rabid dog or a rabid animal where, where they're frothing at the mouth? you find saliva that is foaming up. That's this boy here. 
You find that the pain is so intense, he's gnashing with his teeth, according to verse number 18. Notice that. He gnasheth with his teeth, speaking of extreme pain and speaking of suffering. In fact, Jesus refers with that same expression to folks suffering in hell. In, in Matthew 8.12, he says, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's extreme pain there. This situation is desperate. It's graphic. It's vivid. And we've got a young man here that is wasting away, demon-possessed, pining away, losing weight because of this demon here. Notice in verse number 18 again at the end. He says, And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. They couldn't do it. You know, that's odd. They should have been able to do it. Christ had given them power to do it. We find in Mark 6, we've already looked at it in verse 7, that He called unto Him the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits. So what's the problem here? They should have been able to do this. Well, I think this is the problem. For two and a half years now, they've been walking by sight. No need for faith. The Lord is there. They had Jesus. But here they are now and it's their first test without Christ. He's not with them. He's up on the mountain. So they're flying solo and and, and they lay an egg. (laughs) Walking by sight. That'll do it. In fact, we can be guilty of the same thing. Walking by sight and laying an egg. And, And we have to ask ourselves, how strong is our faith? Before we point a finger at them and before we criticize them, did we get anxious this last week? I mean, did we worry about something? Did we wring our hands? Did we doubt? The Bible says in Romans 1.17, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's speaking of the born again. The justified. The saved are supposed to live by faith. Because folks, we have a God who can do the impossible. In Luke one thirty seven, it says, for with God nothing shall be impossible. So if you worry and I worry, well, take heart. The disciples didn't get it either as well. And they blew a golden opportunity to trust God. They didn't have faith. We read on in verse number 19 that Jesus answereth the dad, him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer or put up with you? Bring him, that is the boy, unto me. He said, O faithless generation. Who is he talking to here? You say, well, it seems like he's talking to the dad. No, I don't think he's talking to the dad here. Well, maybe he's talking to the uh, scribes. They were there. No, I don't think he's talking to the clergy. I think he is talking here about his disciples, the ones who could not cast out the demon. Notice he's exasperated here. It's a strong rebuke. Notice the word, oh, there in verse 19. That speaks of passion. Oh, (laughs) that speaks of emotion. Oh, faithless generation. He's directing this at the apostles. They didn't have faith. By the way, this isn't the first time He's rebuked them for a lack of faith. And this won't even be the last time He rebukes them for a lack of faith. Even after He rises from the dead, they didn't believe it. And in Mark 16.14, afterwards He appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them. He chewed them out with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen Him after He was risen. He says, Oh, faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with this? That's His question here. 
We need to realize how displeasing a lack of faith is to the Lord. Uh, you know, how insulting it really is. It's, it was painful to Christ to have to come down to this scenario and find His disciples with no faith. You know, a faithless Christian life is a displeasing thing to our Creator. We read in Deuteronomy 32.20 that they are a forward generation. Why? Children in whom is no faith. Speaking of the people of God at that time, the word forward even means twisted and perverse. And He says this of them. Why? Because they have no faith. We find that no faith in the life of a Christian is an offensive thing to God. It's insulting to Him. It's repugnant and detestable. And it's the very reason that the children of Israel had to walk 40 years through the desert. God had given them test after test and they flunked it. Sign after sign, miracle after miracle, and they still didn't believe in Him. And so in Numbers 14.22, He says, Because all those men which have seen My glory and My miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted Me now these ten times and have not hearkened to My voice, they're going to do an about-face and walk for 40 years through the desert. What caused all that? A lack of faith. Something so simple as a lack of faith. You want to know the bottom line? Here it is. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Let's mark that down real well in our hearts. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The disciples didn't have it. Christ comes down and He goes, Oh, faithless generation. So aggravating. He says in verse number 19, how long shall I suffer you? You know what that means? How long do I have to suffer with you guys? Put up with you guys. He's exasperated because this is inexcusable. They'd been living with the Son of God now for two and a half years. There are several times I counted them this last week where Christ says to them, O ye of little faith. O ye of little faith. He keeps saying it over and over. O ye of little faith. He had given them power. This is inexcusable. There's no reason for this. And so in verse number 19, notice the last part of the verse. He says, bring him unto me. Bring the boy unto me. That had to be music in the ears of this dad. After watching the disciples hurt themselves, basically trying to help this boy, Christ said, bring him to me. And in verse 20, and they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, when the boy saw Jesus straightway, the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. This had to be hard to watch. But notice the demon here is, is diabolical and he's defiant. He knows his time is short. And so he makes this last ditch effort, this malicious attack, attack on this boy. I don't, I don't exactly know what all this means. He tore him and all that. But I mean, this is, this is getting very, very scary here. Imagine if this was your child. We see this this situation with the embarrassed disciples. But secondly, we see the exasperated dad. The exasperated dad. In verse number 21, it says, Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. Now I want you to picture this. While this violent display, this outburst here of, of scary stuff is taking place, Jesus is calmly asking questions. He knows what he's going to do. And he's inquiring patiently to this dad whose heart was so full, I'm sure of, of years of this, that he just wanted to tell somebody about it. So Jesus says, how long has this been going on? And here's the, the dad. He's more than willing to tell him because of all that was in his heart. You know, we forget to listen sometimes, but Christ was always willing to listen. 
He was willing to talk to this dad. You know, this dad was not looking at some impersonal force here. He was looking at a person, the Son of God, who cares about our pain and our suffering here. So in verse 21, he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. What a childhood. (laughs) Could you imagine years of this going on? What a childhood. Now, you say, why is Jesus Christ asking how long this has been going on? Didn't he know? Of course he knew. He knew everything. He wasn't asking for his knowledge. He was asking for the sake of the crowd there. He was asking for the disciples who had really muffed this one and dropped the ball here. He's asking for their prophet. And he says, how did this happen? How did this devil get into this boy? By the way, there's a reason that people end up with demonic problems. They are messing with stuff they shouldn't be messing with. They are getting into things they shouldn't be getting into. They are opening doors they should not be opening. They are letting the devil in in ways they shouldn't be letting the devil in. Bible says in Ephesians 4.27, neither give place to the devil. Is there anything in your life or my life right now, is there anything in our homes, are we watching stuff? Are we clicking on stuff? Are we listening to stuff? Are we going places that are going to give place to the devil? That's quite a thought. Notice in verse number 22 again. First part says, And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters, to destroy him. You know, the devil was trying to kill this boy. The devil wasn't content with just tormenting this boy. His objective was very evil, and it's always evil. He's trying to kill this boy, obviously before this encounter would take place, but kill this boy so that no doubt the mom and dad would get bitter toward God. That's what people always do. Why did God let this happen? And the devil will do anything he can to get you and me bitter toward God with things like this. And so the devil's always thinking ahead, by the way. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He sees such a much bigger picture than we see. He's always looking further ahead than we're looking. And so he's trying to get this dad bitter by killing this boy. And in verse 22, notice the dad says at the end of the verse, but if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Is there any question about the compassion of Christ? We've looked at it already. Our Savior is compassionate. And the dad says, if, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us. Well, he put the if in the wrong place. (laughs) The if wasn't hanging over Christ. And, And Jesus Christ threw the if right back at the dad here. The dad's if was really the one in contention here. In verse 23, Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe. All things are possible to him that believest. He said, if you can believe, I'll deal with this thing here. Notice Christ is not in the least bit daunted by the situation. He's not threatened. He's not intimidated. He created that devil. If you think about it, that devil was a fallen angel. And so the history of this devil goes way, way, way back. This demon here was once an angel that had fallen and uh, Christ had created it before it fell. And so the creator of the universe is not daunted. The one who created a a, a hundred billion galaxies and put a hundred billion stars in each of those galaxies was not in the least intimidated here by the silly little antics of one stupid demon. He's going to deal with this little imp here, if you will. And in verse number 23, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. 
Wow. He, Christ had already said what He's going to do. He's trying to build the faith now of this dad. If you believe, I can handle this. Do we believe? We can look at the faith of the dad and say, well, it's pretty weak here. Well, notice in verse 27, and straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. You know, this is utterly pitiful, isn't it? It's, it's so sad here. He's crying out with tears. He's begging for help here. Help my unbelief. He was honest enough to admit he didn't have a lot of faith. Let me just say this. Even in the strongest faith, you find out. You might be a Christian of faith sitting here, but even in the strongest of faith, there is doubt. And it would not be faith unless there was some doubt. That's what makes it faith. That's what makes us have to have faith. We need to admit we struggle. We all do, but we're not the first. Even the greatest Christians of days gone by have struggled with faith. But you know what? God can still work with a little faith. In fact, Christ mentions the the faith of a grain of mustard. A a little mustard seed is so tiny. I've seen them over in the Holy Land. And that's all that is required. You know, I find it interesting that back in Genesis, there's a, a woman who's 90 years of age, hasn't had a baby yet, and the Lord shows up and says, you're going to have a baby this time next year. And that woman's name is Sarah. And remember what she did? She laughed. She thought it was hilarious. She thought it was a joke. I mean, in her heart, she's going, yeah, that's a good one, right? Yeah, that'll really happen. Well, we find that it did happen. And over the New Testament, it mentions it in Hebrews 11.11, that through faith, also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed when she was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. (laughs) You know, God is so gracious to say that about Sarah. (laughs) Because as I read the Bible, it was anything but that. She's hiding behind the tent door laughing, no faith at all. But God gave her a baby. You know, we all see God come through time and time again. That ought to grow our faith up. We shouldn't be taking steps backwards when it comes to faith. We should be moving forward. We read this in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or fit, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. Is our faith growing? God help us. We find the embarrassed disciples and the exasperated dad, but thirdly, we find the exercised demon. You've heard of an exorcism? Well, this devil is about to be cast out. In verse 25, when Jesus saw that the, the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. Now, it's time to end the conversation. I mean, the devil's carrying on there in the boy. The, the Lord is talking back and forth with the dad here. But the people see that a scene is created and they start running together and it's, and it's time to fix the problem and quickly. Unlike faith healers today so-called, Christ wasn't trying to make a scene. So when he saw the crowd coming, he said, we better deal with this right now. So in verse number 25, he said, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee. I charge thee. Notice the authority and the power. Come out of him and enter no more into him. This demon wasn't dealing with doubting Thomas anymore, was he? (laughs) This demon wasn't dealing with impetuous Peter or Jude or the rest of that bunch who were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Now the demon, he's dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and sovereign. And in verse 25, notice, he rebuked the foul spirit. 
We find a number of times in the Bible, God rebukes the devil. And that's all it takes because the devil, though, though very, very, very powerful, is just like a little imp that God can grab by the nap of the neck and shake and rebuke. We read in Zechariah 3, 2, And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord rebuke thee. You know what you do with demons? You rebuke them. They're beyond reformation. <laughs> I'll just tell you right now, you will not rehabilitate the devil. He's beyond that. He is pure evil. You rebuke him. And so in verse 25, he rebuked him and then he said, enter no more into him. This is going to be a permanent healing, a permanent cure. What God does, he, he finishes. In verse 26, it says, and the spirit cried, and rent or tore him sore. I mean, really ripped him. And I don't understand that fully. Notice, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, he is dead. Here you find the, the last savage act of this demon, like as to say, in your face, Jesus, I'll kill this boy on the way out. And so he does. He's a ferocious fiend. And he's a murderer. And Christ said of him in John 8.44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Who do you think inspired Cain to kill his brother? And who do you think behind every murder since that time? He was a murderer from the beginning. Learn something about the devil here. Jesus is about to cast this devil out and he's more ferocious than ever. And then his final act is to just kill the boy on the way out. Know this about the devil. They get... The devil gets more ferocious when he knows his time is short. When he knows his time is up. My brothers told me a story years ago about something they encountered. My older brothers. I don't remember if it was with my cousins or where they were. It was some apartment my dad was remodeling at the time. And this rat came out of some place. And they thought it would be fun to chase the rat. So they were chasing the rat around the apartment and out into the yard and into the garage. And finally they got it in a corner and they're going, eh, this is great. And all of a sudden, the rat stood up on its hind feet and went, Yay! and they went, Yay! and they ran for their lives. You corner a rat, you're in for a fight. The devil's a rat. And when he knows his time is short, he's going to get more ferocious than ever. Now, let me just say this. I think we're living in the last times. And we read this in Revelation 12, 12. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. Why? Because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. If you've got eyes, you know this world's whacking out. Do I have to stop and explain how it's whacking out? It is whacking out. And if you believe the Bible, you know there are some indicators around us that are telling us it's close. It's just about time. The devil has great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Well, this demon made a scene on his way out. But notice in verse 27, But Jesus took him, the boy, by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The very first face he saw was the wonderful face of the Lord Jesus Christ, his hero. Something he'd never forget for the rest of his life. The one who had rescued him and delivered him. We see the embarrassed disciples, the exasperated dad, the exercised demon, and finally this earnest disclosure. The apostles are just baffled and they're going, how'd you do that? 
Notice as you pick it up in verse number 28. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? Why couldn't we do it? We've done it in the past. We, we know we have the ability, and they had done it in the past. In Mark 6.13, it says, And the apostles cast out many devils, and anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. And so this is odd. They're confused. They're embarrassed. <laughs> in fact, we read in Matthew 17, same scenario, verse 19, Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. Now, he mentioned something else here in Mark 9. We'll look at it in just a second. But he said the main issue here, fellas, your unbelief. Your unbelief. Back to that same scenario. Guys, you've gotten presumptuous. You've gotten sloppy. You thought, oh, we'll just do this like at other times. You haven't been in the prayer closet. You haven't been reading your Bible. You've been arguing about who would be the greatest. You haven't been walking with me. No wonder you're powerless. You've been presumptuous. Remember Samson, who thought he was going to go shake himself as at other times, and all of a sudden he's blind and grinding wheat like an ox in the mill? Presumptuous. You know, we can get presumptuous sometimes. We can get intoxicated with earlier successes, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, what's going on? And the apostles were just that. Boy, they'd, they'd done this before. <laughs> they, they strut out there like they're going to do it again and they're shooting blanks going, this is bad. And, and there's a scene created here and they're embarrassed and they're sweating, they're red. Well, in verse number 29 or 28, they said, how come we couldn't cast him out? In verse 29, he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. This kind. This is different. This is a higher level. This is a greater degree. This is another story. This kind, and there's a whole sermon there, can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. May I stop here and just challenge this church in this coming year to maybe consider doing some fasting. Fasting. May I challenge you maybe even every week, take 24 hours a 24-hour block where you just fast. Now, if you have physical conditions and that's not a good idea for you, don't die over it and say, Pastor Skeving said to do it. Please. But if you can do this, and if God lays it upon your heart, would you consider fasting 24 hours out of 168 every week? This kind, this kind, cometh not forth but by prayer and fasting. What an important part of the Christian life. It's a discipline. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul said, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach unto others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul kept under his body. I think he's referring here, amongst other things, to this discipline, this self-restraint of fasting. In 2 Corinthians 11.27, he speaks of his ministry oftentimes in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and so on. Fasting. Fasting. Jesus said to the disciples, this kind can only come out by prayer and by fasting. Evidently, the Lord had been praying and fasting. Well, this is a lesson on faith. And so I close with this question, how is our faith? You say, well, I believe, but uh, boy, there sure is that unbelief. Well, that's what makes it faith, okay? The doubt is what makes it require faith in order to believe. God doesn't need a whole lot of faith 
to work with. How do we get faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, being in the house of God, and hearing the truths of God, and then believing God and His promises, thousands of them in the Bible. Can we do that? I believe if we do, God will help our unbelief. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.